Judges 16, verses 18 through 30. When Delilah saw that he had told her everything, she sent word to the rulers of the Philistines, Come back once more. He has told me everything. So the rulers of the Philistines returned with the silver in their hands. Having put him to sleep on her lap, she called a man to shave off the seven braids of his hair, and so began to subdue him, and his strength left him. Then she called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Then the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, and took him down to Gaza. Binding him with bronze shackles, they set him to grinding in the prison. But the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now the rulers of the Philistines assembled to offer a sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to celebrate, saying, Our God has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. When the people saw him, they praised their God, saying, Our God has delivered our enemy into our hands, the one who laid waste our land and multiplied our slain. While they were high in spirits, they shouted, Bring out Samson to entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he performed for them. When they stood in between the pillars, Samson said to the servant who held his hand, Put me where I can feel the pillars that support the temple, so that I may lean against them. Now the temple was crowded with men and women. All the rulers of the Philistines were there. On the roof were about 3,000 men and women watching Samson perform. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, O sovereign Lord, remember me. O God, please strengthen me just once more. And let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines from my two eyes. Then Samson reached toward the two pillars on which the temple stood, bracing himself against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he pushed with all his might, and down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus he killed many more when he died than while he lived. May God bless the reading of His Word. All right. Well, we come to the grand finale of the Judges series, uh, at least the finale, and you can tell me later if it was grand or not, I guess. But we have been in this series all summer long, and uh, you know some of you are probably glad to uh, be done with it. <laughs> it's a lot of, of odd stories, uh, stories we're not you know, accustomed to hearing on a Sunday morning because they don't get preached on all that often. And yet it's been, I don't know, really challenging, I think, and, and certainly to my faith and, and hopefully to yours too. And we've found that even these ancient peoples from so long ago, uh, even though, you know, this happened thousands and thousands of years ago, we still find truth in God's Word that we can apply in our life. And so that's been a good lesson learned. Uh, we've looked at a series of men and women flawed, some of them very flawed. Men and women who, you know, people wouldn't have picked them out to be the ones 
for God to use. And yet God picked them. And God equipped them and used them in spite of their flaws. In spite of their shortcomings. And sometimes even through those flaws and shortcomings. And Samson is certainly no exception. And we saw last week when we looked at you know, kind of segment one of Samson's life. And just some of his flaws that he had that we shook our heads at. And we said, you know, how can you be... This guy, you know, might be nominated for the dumbest guy in the Bible award. You know, when you read some of the stuff that he did. But, we saw that God was using him to begin to drive a wedge between his people, God's people, and the Philistine people. Because what had happened was, the people of God had begun to allow themselves to be influenced by the culture. They were giving themselves to this other culture and to these other gods. And pretty soon their identity as God's people were going to fade away. And we spoke last week as we looked at Samson's uh, tendency to chase after women who were not godly women. And the influence that that had on him and the eventual destruction that it brought upon Samson. And we talked about how that was a pretty good image of what Israel as a nation was doing. God's people were giving themselves away to a people who were not godly, who were not pursuing God and His ways whatsoever. And so we read about Samson and Delilah, the famous story. Forbidden love and all that. The mighty man brought down by beauty. Culture loves the story. It's been written into songs and movies and plays and all that. And we read, you know, they cut his hair and he got up thinking that he was still going to be able to defeat them. But he wasn't. His strength was gone. His strength was not his own strength after all. And they took him away and they gouged out his eyes. We remember last week, you know, that the Israelites had said to Samson, Don't you realize the Philistines, they're rulers over us. What have you done to us? They didn't like this wedge that Samson had been driving between them and the Philistines. They seemed to like their presence with the Philistines. So last week we talked about relationships and how it's important that we be careful who our closest friends are. That our closest friends should be those who are closest to God. And this week we move forward into the last chapter of Samson's life. And the thing that I want to bring out the most as we conclude this series of Judges, it's appropriate for the whole series, that we think about the fact that with God there's always something deeper going on than what we see on the surface. And today, you know, it appears that we're looking at Samson versus the Philistines. But I submit to you that there's a battle behind the battle. That there's something deeper going on. Something much more going on than just Samson versus the Philistines. 
And to kind of illustrate that, I want us to, uh, this is going to seem just so random, you know, to jump from talking about the judges and Samson to talking about Yellowstone National Park. But let's make this jump together. And I want to just show you a video that talks about wolves and Yellowstone National Park. And the reason I want to show it to you, I mean, for one, it's, it's just incredible. And, and I hope that it just drives you to be that much more in awe of God's creation and how it works. But I also want you to notice that, you know, on the surface, it looks like they're just reintroducing wolves into Yellowstone National Park. But in fact, there's so much more going on. And that's going to really feed our theme for today. And so watch this video I'm about to play. And notice those things. Exciting scientific findings of the past half century has been the discovery of widespread trophic cascades. A trophic cascade is an ecological process which starts at the top of the food chain and tumbles all the way down to the bottom. And the classic example is what happened in the Yellowstone National Park in the United States when wolves were reintroduced in 1995. Now, we, we all know that wolves kill various species of animals, but perhaps we're slightly less aware that they give life to many others. Before the wolves turned up, they'd been absent for 70 years, but the numbers of deer, because there was nothing to hunt them, had built up and built up in the Yellowstone Park, and despite efforts by humans to control them, they'd managed to reduce much of the vegetation there to almost nothing. They'd just grazed it away. But as soon as the wolves arrived, even though they were few in number, they started to have the most remarkable effects. First, of course, they killed some of the deer, but that wasn't the major thing. Much more significantly, they radically changed the behavior of the deer. The deer started avoiding certain parts of the park, the places where they could be trapped most easily, particularly the valleys and the gorges. And immediately, those places started to regenerate. In some areas, the height of the trees quintupled in just six years. Bare valley sides quickly became forests of aspen and willow and cottonwood. And as soon as that happened, the birds started moving in. The number of songbirds and migratory birds started to increase greatly. The number of beavers started to increase because beavers like to, to eat the trees. And beavers, like wolves, are ecosystem engineers. They create niches for other species. And the dams they built in the rivers um, provided habitats for otters and muskrats and ducks and fish and reptiles and amphibians. The wolves killed coyotes and as a result of that, the number of rabbits and mice began to rise, which meant more hawks, more weasels, more foxes, more badgers. Ravens and bald eagles came down to feed on the carrion that the wolves had left. Bears fed in it too, and their population began to rise as well, partly also because there were more berries growing on the regenerating shrubs. And the bears reinforced the impact of the wolves by killing some of the calves of the deer. 
here's where it gets really interesting. The wolves changed the behavior of the rivers. They began to meander less. There was less erosion. The channels narrowed. More pools formed. More riffle sections, all of which were great for wildlife habitats. The rivers changed in response to the wolves. And the reason was that the regenerating forests stabilized the banks so that they collapsed less often, so that the rivers became more fixed in their course. Similarly, by driving the deer out of some places and the vegetation recovering on the valley sides, there was a soil erosion because the vegetation stabilized that as well. So the wolves, small in number, transformed not just the ecosystem of the Yellowstone National Park, this huge area of land, but also its physical geography. Isn't that something? On the surface, you know, they just reintroduced a few wolves back into Yellowstone National Park that had been killed off some 70 years before. But it went, the results, you know, they went so much deeper than that. On the surface, they just reintroduced wolves, but in fact, they changed the geography, who would have guessed, of Yellowstone National Park. You know, so often, especially for those of us who believe in God, those of us who call ourselves Christ followers, the events of our lives and the events in our communities, they look like one thing on the surface, you know, and a news organization might report it one way, but we know and we believe that there's something deeper at work in those circumstances of our lives than what meets our eye on the surface. And if you were to just look at the surface, you know, you might think, well, they just reintroduced a few wolves, but when you look deeper, you see so much more going on. And I mean, in our lives, just individually, on the surface, you know, maybe you got a, a raise at work. Or on the surface, maybe you lost your job. On the surface, maybe you're facing depression. Or on the surface, maybe you're volunteering more of your time. Just common everyday stuff, not newsworthy. And yet, even though that's what it looks like on the surface, there's often much more going on than meets the eye. In our communities, you know, the crime rates on the rise. Well, perhaps there's more to that than meets the eye. In our communities and in our nation, there's groups like Mercy Ministries that we met with on Wednesday night. And well, on the surface, you know, maybe they're just helping some troubled girls, but maybe there's more to it than what meets the eye. On the surface, it looks like Samson versus the Philistines, but when we look a little deeper, we see that there's more to it than meets the eye. There's this great quote that I ran across just in reading that I was doing while I was 
spending a lot of time at the hospital not so long ago and I was reading this book called Dune. If you're into science fiction you might have heard of it before but it's not one that I would uh, recommend for your theological reading <laughs> or mastership but this quote stood out to me and I thought it just, it just stuck in my mind because I do feel like this fits this is a good reminder for those of us that believe in God and believe in the supernatural and that is what senses do we lack that we cannot see and cannot hear another world all around us another world all around us and I believe that there is another world all around us and we'll never fully grasp just how deep the things that we see on the surface are affecting what goes on in those other worlds and other realms. We, we read, uh, you know, we read as we dove into this story about Samson that the hair on his head began to grow again. Now, this is not rocket science. You shave someone's head, their hair starts growing again. So, why bother to write it? <laughs> you know, the Philistines, their gods, the way it worked was you fulfilled your vows and then you hoped that the gods would see fit to favor you. If you broke your vows, you couldn't expect any help from the gods. They were conditional gods. Well, they just assumed that Samson's god worked the same way and clearly... Samson had broken his Nazarite vow, and a vow intended to set him apart for God's work. And that vow was broken, so the promise of the strength was broken. What they didn't know was that our God doesn't work like other gods. This God of the Israelites, Yahweh, he didn't operate on conditions. You couldn't just follow XYZ and be assured of his favor. And neither could you be assured that his favor would not return whenever and however he wanted to do it. He kind of works on his own set of rules. Nobody else gets to tell him what to do or when to do it. And the Philistines were about to find that out. As well as Samson. But in the time being, the Philistines, it appeared, had the best of Samson. They had gouged his eyes out. They had him working for them and, and apparently entertaining them as well. And we read that they said that the rulers had assembled a big celebration, offered a great sacrifice to Dagon their god. And they said... Our God has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. And when the people saw him, Samson, they praised their God, saying, Our God has delivered our enemy into our hands, the one who laid waste our land and multiplied our slain. And while they were in high spirits, they shouted, Bring out Samson to entertain us. And so they called Samson out of the prison, and he performed for them. Now stop. Don't think ahead. Place yourself in the moment. Standing there in that pagan temple. As Samson is pulled out. 
pitiful looking. Not knowing how the story ends. And doesn't it look like the victory belongs to Dagon? By all appearances, the Philistines believed that the victory belonged to Dagon. They had called this celebration to worship him, to thank him for giving their enemy over to him. But just as victory seemed assured for Dagon, the God of the Israelites seems to say, Dagon, I've got you right where I want you. I'm about to show these people what you are, and that's nothing compared to God Almighty. And Samson prayed. That may not seem like a big deal. People in the Bible ought to pray. But when you read Samson's life story, you don't see a whole lot of prayer there. And when you do, it's selfish kind of prayer. Spoiled brat kind of prayer. But this time it's different. And Samson says, God, and he calls him Adonai, Sovereign. He calls him Elohim, his God. He calls him Yahweh, the God of his people. It's a humbled spirit in Samson as he asks for strength one more time. For one final act of self-sacrifice. And just as victory seemed assured For the Philistines and for Dagon, Yahweh, the God of Israel, strengthens Samson one more time. The pillars are shoved out of the way. Comes crashing down. And victory is snatched from the jaws of defeat. On the surface, it was just Samson and some Philistines. The real battle was between the God of the Israelites, Yahweh, and the God of the Philistines, Dagon. This is the way it is with much of the things we read about in the Bible. Or or do you think that the Exodus is just about Moses and Pharaoh? Or that David and Goliath was just about a boy and a giant? Or that the cross was just about the Romans and Jews and some troublemaker messiah? Let's think about the cross for a moment. But stop. Don't think ahead. Place yourself in the moment, just like we did with Samson. The moment when Jesus is there at the cross. And doesn't it appear that the victory belongs to Satan? Certainly the Jews and the Romans thought they had defeated Jesus. But just as victory seems assured for Satan, God says, Satan, I've got you right where I want you. I'm about to show you that you can't oppress these people anymore. I'm about to show them your true colors, who you really are, which is nothing compared to God Almighty. 
And Jesus prayed. He called God Father. He asked that his will be done. Seeking strength for one ultimate act of self-sacrifice. And just as victory seemed assured for Satan, Jesus cried out, it is finished. And he gave up his life. And what appeared to be defeat, but as we'd find out three days later, was the greatest victory ever known in this realm or any other. Hmm. On the surface, it's just Samson versus the Philistines. On the surface, it's just man on a cross versus the ones that put him there. But when we look deeper, there's so much more at work. And the victory was decided at the cross, but the battle still rages on. Anywhere in this world that you see darkness, there is still darkness to be fought. And I pray that anywhere we, as God's church, Find a pillar left standing of the temple of Dagon that there will be a man of God or a woman of God there to push on that thing by the power of God. Because there's still battles to be done. And on the surface, the things that we do as a church may not look like much. But when you dig a little bit deeper, there's so much more going on than what meets the eye. In our note cards today, if you want to fill them in, just want to ask you this question. Will you succumb to the world? Or if you want to put the word culture there, that works too. Will you succumb to culture or to the world? Or will you fight for the kingdom? Will you sit on the sidelines? Or will you get in the fight? There's three things that I want us to consider today about the fight. And we can draw these from what we read about Samson. The first thing is who can fight in this fight? Who can fight the fight? And looking at Samson, we have to say anybody can fight the fight. This guy was far from perfect. He had problems in a big way. So who can fight the fight? Anybody, But I'll say this to you. Don't fight the fight without Jesus. People do it, you know. You ever know of someone who did mighty things for the kingdom? And in the end, it became obvious that their own relationship with God was non-existent. And what good is it, I think Jesus would say, if you do great things for my kingdom, but forfeit your own soul? 
So anybody can fight the fights of the kingdom. But be sure you're doing it with Jesus. Because to the world you may look like you're doing great things, but in the end, who you are on your knees before God is who you are, ultimately. It's all that matters in the end. So be sure that you're fighting the fight with Jesus. Next, how do we fight the fight? Well, as we saw with Samson, there's no real silver bullet to this thing. There's no formula that just works like, you know, hey, you do this, you let the hair grow back, whatever, you know. It's hard to predict God sometimes. We're not going to be able to just force God's hand to get this done or that done. But one thing about God is when He calls someone to do something, He equips them to do it. And so how do we fight the fight? We fight the fight by the power of God. And we fight the fight on our knees in prayer. Relying on God and not for one instant believing that the strength is ours. That the ability is ours, like Samson made the mistake of thinking. We fight the fight with God's strength that He gives us for each task that He calls us to. And the last thing is how do we win the fight? And when I look at Samson's victory, and when I look at Jesus' ultimate victory on the cross, one thing really stands out it's a common thread that there's one strategy one tactic in kingdom fighting that seems to trump all the rest and that's self-sacrifice self-sacrifice Samson sacrificed everything in one last push Victory was won. Jesus sacrificed everything. And ultimate victory was won. So we should expect as well, if we want to get in this fight, if you want to fight this kingdom fight, that our best strategy is going to be self-sacrifice. It may not look the same, But man, when you give sacrificially of your money or your time or your gifts, when there's a a list of umpteen things you'd rather be doing with your time, but you carve out time for the kingdom instead. So many things that seem pressing at home or at work, but you make time to fight some darkness, to feed the poor, to clothe the poor, to care for the widow and the orphan, the shut-ins, to bring some of God's compassion to the people that need it the most. And we make time for that and we sacrifice. That's how we win the fight.
So reflect on this. Is there a new way? This is on your card so you can take it and you can reflect on this all week long. But is there a new way that you can sacrificially use the opportunities, the gifts, the resources that God has given you in the fight to reclaim what hell has stolen? Because there's something deeper going on than what it appears on the surface. And just as it appeared that it was just Samson and some Philistines, it was actually about God versus Dagon. And even now, there's a battle going on for people's souls. And hell is trying to steal everything that it can from heaven's grasp. Do you believe that? Look around us in this world. When you see a news story... Remember that there's something deeper going on than what it appears on the surface. When you see someone that you're tempted to say, Oh my goodness, that pitiful person. Or to think rude thoughts toward, or to think how despicable they should be put in jail, or whatever the thought you may have about the people that you run into in Walmart and here and there and wherever in this world make you shake your heads at the way that they treat their kids or the way that they treat their friends or their spouses or the way that they're treating themselves or the way that they're treating you and realize there's something deeper going on than what you're just seeing on the surface and there's a battle being waged for their very souls and we as the people of God are called to get in the fight And the things that we do on the surface may not seem like much, but at a deeper level, there's something much more going on. Do you believe that? I mean, we're going to go to Grace Place and we're going to serve some meals. On the surface, you know, that's August 31st. We're going to go serve lunch to a couple hundred people here in Monroe. That it's hard for them to get a meal, and so they come to Grace Place. And on the surface, we're just passing out food. I believe that there's something more at work there. Because there's some darkness in this community. Keeps kids and adults too from being fed and provided for the way they should. And we can be quick to point out to all the reasons that we think, you know, man, they should be working and they should be doing this. And, but again... What you see on the surface isn't always the whole story. And hell would love to keep people bound up thinking that they're worthless. That they're never going to be anything but poor. Hell would love to keep convincing people that their life is worthless. They'd be better off dead than alive. Hell would love to keep people addicted to all the things we get addicted to. But we, as God's church, are called to be bold and to get in the fight to reclaim what hell has stolen. That's a theme that our general director of the Church of God, uh, who resides in Anderson, where our headquarters is, of all the churches that are affiliated with the Church of God. 
That was the theme at our convention this year and the theme for our year is to be bold and reclaim what hell has stolen. And I like that. It's a rallying cry, a reminder of why God's put us here in this place and time. It's for a purpose, right? It's not just to be here and make ourselves feel good about ourselves. It's for a purpose. And on the surface, the things that we do may not look like much. But if we're doing them on purpose, if we're being sacrificial in our strategy and in our mission, then I believe we'll see much more happening than what just appears to be happening on the surface. Just like there was much more going on in Yellowstone than what it appeared on the surface. Let's pray together as the band comes up. Father, thank you for sacrificing to secure victory for all of us. God, we confess that sometimes we get distracted from the fight that you've called us to. Other times, God, we think that we can do this fight in our own strength or in our own wisdom. Holy Spirit, we need you. Help us to be bold while wholly leaning and relying on your strength. And we'll give you all the glory. Amen.